This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 220. Vet friends, before we get into this podcast, I want to tell you something very special happening for you in May. We know that veterinary medicine is advancing quickly and pets are living longer and longer, resulting in senior and geriatric dogs making up more of our patient population than ever before. These pets have unique needs and require a different approach than younger pets. The Senior and Geriatric Dog Veterinary Society was founded by three outstanding women two general practitioners, and an internal medicine specialist, whose focus is to enhance and optimize our care for this very special patient population. So they've created some CE coming in May, focused solely on senior and geriatric canine medicine. And let me tell you, this CE is going to be great. We all need to learn more about treating senior and geriatric dogs. We see so many, right? Learn about this fabulous CE from my friends at SeniorDogVets.com and use code VETLIFECOACH50 for a $50 discount. That's www.SeniorDogVets.com and use the code VETLIFECOACH50 for $50 off. Okay, now let's get into the podcast. Hello friends, welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today I have an exciting and wonderful guest for you someone that I met through the NAVC and got to know a little bit, um, but I'm really excited to get to know her better, and I'm really excited to share her lovely life experience with you. This is Paige Allen, and she's a registered veterinary technician. She is the Assistant Director of Academic Advising and Recruitment the for the Veterinary Nursing Program at Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome to the podcast page. I'm so excited to have you here. Well, thanks, Julie. It's really a thrill to be here. And I think we know each other a little better maybe than you said, because I think we um, dressed up in our 80s clothes and did some partying at VMX. Yeah, at VMX. That was so much fun. Like that, the 80s party was a blast. Yeah. And I think even the pre getting ready in my room with the, you know, I don't know what were there, eight or 10 of us and yeah. um, uh, the crazy picture just makes my heart, it just makes my heart full when I see that, the, all the fun we had. Yeah. It, that was a great experience. Like that is a really g- good group of, of people that yep. NAVC crew and yep. they treated me like gold and I loved every minute of it. So, um, yeah. you know, you should be, you should be proud of that group. I am, I am really proud of proud and humble, like all at the same time. Right. Like I, I think to myself, how did I get there? Cause I'm, I'm just a veterinary technician and I <laughs> Don't hate, say that. The, I hate yeah. the word just like, yeah. I really work to not use that word in, in my everyday language because I, I think it, it, uh, demeans, I don't know if that's the right. It, it decreases the value of what we say. For sure. Um, so I really work with on myself and then with my students, like we're not just anything. You are a veterinary technician. You are a woman, you are whatever. Um, and we're all so many different things. So it, and, and it's just, it's a very humbling experience to think, you know, I, so a little bit of my story or maybe more. I'll tell tell me your veterinary technician story. I like to always hear like how you got into this business. Oh my gosh. It's, um, it's hard to believe. So I graduated from vet tech school in, um, 1984. So that's almost 40 years ago, which I like in my brain, I'm barely 40. So how can I have graduated from school 40 years ago? I know. I think younger people don't understand that concept is it goes by so fast. And then you're like, wait, I'm only 30. And then yeah. you're like, oh no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Yeah. So, um, so when I was in high school, I had decided I wanted to be a veterinarian and I, so in the late seventies, early eighties, so I graduated from high school in 81. Um, and so I did some shadowing at a vet clinic and, and of course the male veterinarian said, you know, you, you can't really be a veterinarian. You're a woman. Right. And so rural South Dakota, small community, that mindset of to be a veterinarian. And in many ways in the large animal world, it was somewhat true because it was still such a physical profession in large animal. Um, The 
pharmaceuticals hadn't been, you know, really um, uh, created that allowed women with less physical ability ability to be large animal veterinarians. But I, it didn't stop me. So I went to college. I went to my first year of college. Um, so South Dakota is where I'm from. And we don't have a vet school in South Dakota, but there are, artic are, are articulation agreements with Kansas State and other veterinary colleges. And so um, first year of college, maybe spent a little bit more time in the bar than I did study in and maybe <laughs> I love that. <laughs> didn't have great grades. Well, that's where your partying came from, huh? Yeah, a little bit, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Um, and so in the spring semester, I met with my academic advisor and he's like, you know, like, so, I mean, my grades were like a two, seven, two, eight. So they weren't horrible, but he said, you know, this is, this is not going to, you're not going to get into vet school with not grades like fly this. For vet school. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, what am I going to do? I don't know what I want to do. So I went home for the summer and this flyer came in the mail from this college in Rapid City, South Dakota, advertising for their animal health technician program. Oh, cool. And I thought. Oh my gosh. I like, I, I tell people, I think by the grace of God, I ended up as a veterinary technician because this flyer came in the mail. I read this. I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. And so I went out to national college. I did my vet tech degree, graduated in two years, um, went to a private practice in Nebraska that was mixed animal. So I'm a dumb city kid. My grandma called me a dumb city kid my whole life. Um, uh, because of course they're farmer, they were farmers. Um, and ag people. So ag is in my, is in my blood, but I was a dumb city kid. And, uh, but I went to work in this private uh, mixed practice, mixed animal practice, learned so much, but quickly, quickly got bored, which is a little bit of the theme of my career changes in my life is I, I do something <laughs> and then I learn everything and then I get bored and let's go do something else. Yeah. Um, so I applied for and got the job at Purdue University. I came to work here in the large animal hospital for an amazing veterinarian, um, bovine veterinarian, um, Harold Amstutz, um, who taught me so much um, and then transitioned to the anesthesia, anesthesia and surgical nursing side in the large animal hospital here at Purdue. Um, so I've spent the rest of my career here at Purdue, but I've done different jobs. So I did um, the anesthesia job for years, uh, probably three or four years, loved that. But at, at the time, single woman, trying to think about my future, didn't know that I'd always want to be at Purdue. Um, so I worked on my bachelor's in business administration through Indiana mm -hmm. Wesleyan, and they had a, an adult education program. And so while I was doing that, then um, the uh, director of central supply job came open in the hospital. And so sterilization, um, uh, surgical goods, uh, you know, syringes, needles, all that stuff for the whole hospital. And I applied for and got that job um, and uh, learned so much about sterilization, inventory control. I instituted the barcode system in our hospital for tracking items, you know, back in the olden days before there was a lot of computerization. Yeah. Um, I brought um, ethylene, I got rid of ethylene oxide and brought in um, mm. CO2. Is that right? CO2 sterilization, you know, for your endoscopes and things. Yeah. Yeah. That transition. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, and I also supervise like five people. And I realized at that time that maybe supervision is not my strength. <laughs> Why do you say that? What well, about I say it that. didn't appeal to so you? <laughs> when, um, so one of the things I just talked to my supervisor about, because we just did my performance evaluation was, I, I know, sounds arrogant, I'm saying it. I know that I'm a good leader. I'm good visionary. I'm good strategic. I'm a good leader. I am not a great supervisor or a manager of people. Those are two very different skills. Yes, they are different um, skills. Yeah. And, and he actually rated me higher on my evaluation than I did in my supervision portion. And he said, Paige, you don't think you are a good supervisor. He said, but you work at it. You are invested in your employees. You, um, you do care about them and you want them to grow and learn. And he said, those are things that, you know, but I think it's because it doesn't come natural to me. I don't like having, I will have difficult conversations but I don't like them. People not think I like them. Yeah. No, people think I like them. I don't like them, but I'm also not one to let things just bubble under the surface. Let's bring it up. Let's talk about it. And then right. let's move on. Yeah. So, so that's why I say I'm not wild about supervision. I have four people I supervise now, but, um, 
I'm also 20 years older and have a little more experience. So still not my favorite thing to do, but I know that I can do it. And it's, it's that ability to, to step outside your comfort zone, to recognize that you need, this is what you need to do in this role. And I think that's the piece for me, Julie, that's always people, people talk about how did you get where you are? You took all these risks and I never saw them as risks. It's like, well, this is the next natural thing to do. This is this is what's right for the profession. This is what's right for me. This is what's right in my particular time. And it feels right. You know, as we talked earlier before we actually started the official, um, you know, about it is time to retire. And and I use the word retire from Purdue because you have to retire from Purdue to get the Purdue benefits, right? <laughs> of a retiree. So you have to use but the I, word. <laughs> so you use the word at Purdue, but I don't, I'm like, I'm looking, what's my next career? What's my next right. career move? That's where I'm yeah. looking. So central supply director, I did that for about three and a half years. I got recruited by Dr. Pete Bell um, to come down to the vet tech program. And I helped design and start our veterinary nursing distance learning program. Oh, so, okay. So it wasn't there at Purdue before you no, got there. No. So oh. Dr. Bill and I and a couple other people um, brought that program together. It got accredited in the early 2000s. So it's been accredited for 20 some years. Um, and I did that job probably for the longest period of time um, as an, a developer and then an instructor. And I would talk to Dr. Bill a lot about towards the end of my time in that position of I'm bored, but the ability, and I, and I, I was bored in my job because I'm not one that wants to do the same stuff day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And that's really like, I was to the point of instruction, you know, doing some slight revisions to the courses. Um, but that's when NABC came into my life. And so then I got this fulfillment of um, excitement and learning and growing in my role on the NABC board. Um, and then about five years ago, the head academic advisor left. Oh, and during that time, I'm doing this distance learning program. I went back to school again, um, to get my master's in educational technology, because I thought if I'm an instructor and I'm designing courses, I need to have some understanding of that. I think one of the mm, fallacies, I don't know if that's the right word. One of the weaknesses of higher education vet schools, but also higher education in general, is that you bring in these experts in those content areas, but none of us went to school to be teachers. None of us understand instruction. None of us right. understand instructional design, how to write really good objectives, how to present the material, and then test on those objectives, all of that conversation. So every veterinarian, every veterinary technician that teaches in our program doesn't, most of them don't have any background in education. It's not any different in the college of science, you know, with the biology majors they're being taught right. by. So I just think to myself, how, to, it's just, anyway, that's another bright path we could go down. Um, but I got my master's and, uh, and then about five years ago, our head advisor left and I went, I, I think I want to do this. I think I want to continue to inspire and engage with and recruit and talk about this amazing profession. Um, you know, you know, as well as anybody, the last five to 10 years, the increase in suicide rate and those conversations and the change of generation and how they look at themselves, how they look at mental health, how they don't want to work 60 to 80 hours a week. And us old people are like, what is the matter with you? And, <laughs> and I finally, I finally turned the question back to me and was like, what was the matter with me? That you were willing to work that hard, right? That I thought that that was what I should do. And I don't regret anything that I've done or any of the choices that I've made because it's made me who I am today. And I'm pretty happy with where I'm at. Yeah. Um, but I think that they have a better grip, a better grip. I don't know if that's the right word, a better they have something that I wish I would have had that work life balance, integration, whatever you want to call it, of their working to live, not living to work. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and then, how do we, as an older generation of hiring and engaging with that younger generation, how do we modify? So that, you know, I think people think, I want to hire one person, I need one FTE, I want to hire one person. Well, why do you have to hire one person? Yeah. Why can't why can't two people fit that job? And they're maybe they're stay-at-home moms who want to get back into practice as a technician, right? I'm I'm speaking as the technician role. Right. And but they only can work half days or they can only work three days a week. 
why are we stuck in, we have to hire one person to fill one role. I mean, I know it's more people management, right? Right, right. But I think looking at those people's strengths and figuring out how to bring them into practice so that we're all happy, we all get a better life work balance, that we have a workplace that's a grow a place for growth and a place for joy and not this downer that it seems like I see a lot on social media of, you know, my, my work life is horrible. People are mean. And, you know, so, so that's here I am finishing out my career at Purdue as an academic advisor, because I really want to engage with those young people. I want to, I want to be honest with them about the profession, right? It's not all riding horses and hugging puppies and 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 rainbows, (laughs) right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's vomit and diarrhea and, you know, it's science. It's not enough to just love animals. You've got to be able to do the biology and the chemistry and the pharmacology and the physiology. And, and I, the other thing I just realized the other day, Julie, is how much veterinary technology has changed since 40 years ago when I was an animal health technician. And I was a set of hands to do what I was told to do, which I think is part of why I didn't stay in private practice, that boredom piece. That isn't who I am. I want to learn. I want to grow. Right. And now the profession has become that. It is this critical thinker, um, important piece of the team, the veterinarians really right or left arm, whichever arm they want them to be, that can, and their eyes that can really say, you know, I'm looking at, at, um, I'm looking at, I don't know, Fifi in the cage, and I just don't think we're managing her pain post-op. I really, she's giving me some clinical signs that I'm really concerned about, and I think I'd like to up her meds. And for the veterinarian to say, fine, go do it without ever having to go and look at the patient, to trusting me to know that what I'm doing. Yeah, and I think that's, that is a challenge for a lot of veterinarians to trust their technicians. And I don't know how I was so blessed in my practice to have such good, solid technicians who have a lot of common sense, love what they do, stayed with me, you know, for 20 plus years, but it's such a blessing to just trust and be like, okay, we're putting this dog under, call me when you're ready. And, you know, here's the drugs, here's our protocol, you know, and if they have a question, they would ask me, but I would totally trust And then doing the surgery, you know, I would tell the younger veterinarians, I'd be like, all right, you can trust this technician. If you're having doubts about what's going on, concentrate on your surgery. But all you have to do is say, how's she doing? You know, like that's, I would just be like doing my spay. And if I got a little bit of nerves, I would say, hey, Deanna, how's she doing? Mm -hmm. She's great. Her heart rate's good. She's breathing great. Her color looks great. Like, and I never even had to look up, like I could trust, I could hear the beeping of the monitor, but I could trust that they were telling me the yeah. truth and, and to speak up when they weren't sure. No. Hey, Dr. Capel, I'm a little worried about her heart rate or Hey, Dr. Capel, I'm not like in her color or her O2 is getting, you know, low or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that if we can Like, how do we do that? I mean, you're the greatest person to ask. How do we teach young veterinarians who to trust, how to trust, and how to, you know, concentrate on their jobs and let the techs have their jobs? Yeah. Like, is there a skill to that? Well, I think, yeah, there's a lot of skill to that. And there's (laughs) a lot of, you know, it because I also, I have to recognize as a technician that I'm really working under your license. Like, you're the one who's liable if things go south. I'm I'm not. And we're the ones that have to call the client and say, um, you remember that dog you brought me? Exactly. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, so let me, let me tell a story and then I'll come back to what I, how I think this, how, how I'm trying to talk to our, our, our 18 to 22 year old vet nursing students yeah, and then also veterinarians. Um, so when I was a young technician, so I was doing anesthesia in large animal. And of course, we uh, part of that responsibility is coming in and doing colics in the middle of the night, right? Um, and so I'd probably been doing anesthesia on my own for about a year, eight months to a year. And I was in, um, in the middle of the night with an amazing surgeon, Steve Adams. And um, 
I said something to him. I can't even remember, but I said, Hey, Dr. Adams, this and this, and this is going on. And I want to do this and this and this. And he stopped his colleague surgery and he looked at me and he said, Paige, I need to concentrate on what I'm doing. And I need you to do your job doing anesthesia. And what that said to me was he trusted that I knew what I was doing and that if I got in trouble, he knew I would ask and that I needed to let him do his job and I would do my job. And I think it, that's exactly what you talked about, right? That trust and that good feeling. And I think all of us need to understand that trust doesn't happen the first time you work together. Sure. And it may not happen until the 20th or the hundredth time that you work together. But I think the things that we can all do to build trust so that it can happen sooner rather than later is to be honest with each other. I think communication is super important. I think um, uh, an environment where mistakes aren't punished or failures, it's not a failure, it's a learning opportunity, right? And how that switches the mindset of, if I make a mistake, I have to be able to say, I made a mistake. And yeah. then my supervisor or my veterinarian has to say, okay, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? Instead of berating me right. or taking away any authority I have because I made one mistake, right? And, a, and those mistakes can be huge, right? It could be a death of a patient from a mistake I made. Yeah. And it sometimes is right. Like yeah. that's, that's part of our job. And I, yep. I'm coaching people. I'm like, look, part of our job is hard. Like we do have risk, yeah. but handling that and being able to do that is what it's all about. Yep. And so then also for me as the technician to not be afraid to say to the doctor, I don't know. And can you help me? Because I think that two things, I think the two things that for me build the biggest build trust, the fastest is my ability. When I say I've made a mistake or when I say, I don't know, and I need your help because that's, you know, if I say that to you as a doctor, I don't know, or I've made a mistake, please help me. Then that immediately puts to you, well, she knows. And now I can help build on that. And then I know that she'll come to me when she has, when she's made a mistake or when she has a question. And I think, you know, and then for me as the technician to know that you as the doctor aren't going to berate me and tell me how stupid I am when I make a mistake, but say, here's a learning opportunity. This is what I would have done. This is what I would like you to do next time. How can we, how can we as a team have that conversation so that it doesn't happen again? Right. You know, well, is it I creating think, an SOP? Yeah, go ahead. I, I think the same thing goes for the doctors and being able to say, I don't know. Like when I coach veterinarians, they're, they're really hung up on having to know everything, you know, and it's like, why do we think we need to know it all? Cause we don't, and we also make mistakes. Right. And I think what you said about if the techs can say they made a mistake, that's part of that trust is I can say, I don't know to my techs, or I'm starting to freak out. You know, like I had an instance one day I was doing a spay and the dog was not doing well but I've got her guts out, right? I'm trying to tie off things. And, and I'm saying to my text, well, do this, try that, get this drug. And finally, I just said, oh, there's another doctor in the building. We had a relief vet that day. And I said, can you go get Dr. O'Connor and have her come in here? Because she was an ER vet. And I was like, that's who I need. So yeah. I'm just like, go get her, turn down the gas. Like I'm, I'm barking out, but I'm just like spaying because I'm like, I got to get this dog off the table Yeah, and yeah. just to be like, okay, I don't know what to do either because my hands are in the dog. So if yeah. we can recruit somebody else to help figure this out, like, I don't know what's going on, why this dog isn't doing well. Yeah. And it was just, the techs were like relieved. And I was relieved because another doctor came in and she's like, all right, what's going on? Okay. And then she just kind of like took over the anesthesia part and I just yeah. spayed the dog. And I think being okay with that, like I was panicking a little bit, they were panicking a little bit, but the three of us, you know, the tech, the other doctor and I figured it out and got the dog safely, you know, through the surgery. And I think that if you can be humble enough to say like, I'm having a little panic moment, or I don't know what to do, or I need help. Like that's just, that's all okay. Yeah. 
And that builds and trust I, within your team, right? Yeah. And I think Julie, even, even saying that, being able to say that to your technician, I don't know the answer to the question you just asked, but let's figure it out together. Right. Or, you know, especially to new doctors, when they're coming into a practice and they're working with seasoned staff, oh my gosh, don't be afraid to say to that seasoned technician, I don't know. I don't know. I've never done this before. I didn't get to right. do this in vet school. Yeah. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. Can you, because we love that because it, it, it puts us on a level playing field and, and, and we all know, right. Doctor technician. And I don't mean that in a bad way. There's a hierarchy right. Right. and that's how, because you guys do have a greater education than we do, but the ability to say, I'm not better than you and I need your help mm -hmm. will go such a long way for that technician to go, Oh my gosh. Or or the, you know, you walk by a cage and you see that a dog's laying in its own feces or urine and you don't say, hey, Paige, go clean that up. But you get in the cage and clean it up yourself because you know I'm busy doing X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that, like, is it as simple as we just are human and we are kind to each other and we take care of each other? Like, why is that so hard for us to do? Yeah. And I think in a, in a lot of ways, it's... I don't know, maybe it's programming, maybe it's um, the way we're taught in school. I mean, you would know this better than I do because it's been so long since I've been in vet school. But I think on some level, there should be some some class or something in vet school that teaches you that. Like, look, you're not going to know everything. It's all it's okay. Your techs are going to know more. I When I hire a new veterinarian, I tell them that. I'm like, look, these techs have been doing this for 20 some odd years and they will help you if you're humble enough to ask. You know, mm -hmm. I remember when I was a really young vet and I was just learning birds, um, this this uh, canary came in and he had a band that was on too tight. And so I was like, oh, well, I got to get it off, right? So I, I got it off. But when I got it off, the, the bird just started gushing blood. Oh, and, my, and my other avian vet wasn't like he was not there or busy or something. And I was just like, you know, this bird's going to die unless I do something. So like I put pressure on it and I turned to the text. I'm like, what would Dr. Evans do? And they're like, well, I think that leg needs to come off. I think you're going to have to amputate it. And I was like, huh, what? <laughs> no, but they helped me. I'm like, can you help me? Yeah. Can you help me put the bird under? Can you help me control the bleeding? Can you help me figure out how to do this? And I did it. And then like, I was in a panic, but the two technicians were like, well, this is what he would do. And I've seen him do this and he would put a bandage on and this is how he would do it. And mm -hmm. I just did it. And then later when I talked to the experienced vet, I was like, well, here's what happened. And I, but I don't know that I did it correctly. And he said, well, is the leg off? And I said, yeah. And he said, is the bird alive? And I said, yeah. He said, well, then you did it right. <laughs> and I still remember that because I was in such a panic, but the techs, the two technicians, that had worked with him for years were like, they helped me. Yeah. And had yeah. they not, had they not been like, okay, we'll, we'll help you. We'll tell you what to do. I would have probably killed that bird or, you know, I might've stumbled my way through it, but just to have that, that support was really important. Yeah. I think, you know, the overarching goal for all of us is that we want to we wanna take care of our patients and we want to do it in the best way that we can with the tools and the knowledge that we have in that moment. And so if that's always the goal, best patient care and, and by extension, client care, right? Because no, no patient comes in by themselves. Yep, and that's um, a big lesson, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember telling people, they're like, why didn't you go into human medicine? I'm like, well, because I don't really like people. And then, you know, recognizing that, mm, there's a people with every animal that comes in yep. and you still get to do people. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, if, if that's our goal and that's our mission and that's everything we do, then all of this other stuff should, I don't know, just should not be a piece of it. But I also think, again, we have people involved and people aren't perfect, you know, and people make mistakes and people have bad days and aren't kind to each other. And I absolutely, you know, when I say we should, can't we just all be kind? I definitely have days when I'm not kind. Um. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that brain takes over and it just, things don't come out the way you mean them to. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, you know, that's the thing that I try to talk to my students about is a advocate for yourself. Um, and I actually just sat in the office with a second year um, the other day. She's 19 and she is a student worker in our large animal hospital. And the reason she took that job is because she doesn't have a lot of large animal experience and she wants to learn. And she said, but my supervisor um, is kind of yelling at me. And I, and I, and she said, so I talked to her about it last week. And I said, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm here to learn. And she said, my supervisor said to me, oh, that's right. So I need to change my expectations of you as a student worker. And I said to her, I am so proud of you for advocating for yourself and for asking and, and reminding her that your level of knowledge is not where she thought it could or should be. And so then she's like, I'm a little nervous about going to work. I think it was Tuesday night. And so I said to her, when you come into work and you see her, you know, maybe you just start the evening off with, I really appreciate you talking to me last week. I'm glad that we had that conversation. I'm super excited to learn from you. And um, I, I, I know that you're, you know, that I don't have a lot of experience, but so it said, I said, you're gently reminding her where you're at right? in a, in a way that is thanks so much because we all love to be thanked. Um, sure. And I said, it might sound like sucking up a little bit. I get accused a little bit of being a suck up, but I also think, you know, I'm going to use like an old person. You get more, you get more, what is it? You get more, more bees, bees with honey, with, with honey, with honey than you do with vinegar, vinegar or something. Yeah. yeah. Something like yeah, that. That's an old, that's an old saying. <laughs> that's an old, old person. But see, saying. we both know it. So you can tell we've been around a while, right? Yeah. yeah. So I just think that's the truth. If you're kind to people and they're going to want to work with you, they're going to want to do things with you. They're going to want to have conversations with you. Um, they're going to be more willing to listen to you if you built that relationship and had that rapport. Yeah. And so as much as veterinary medicine is about taking care of our patients, it's also about how do you engage with people above you, below you, and, and at your same level, right? Right. The kennel workers are as vitally important as the veterinarian. Honest to God. Yeah. Like I started in the kennel. Yeah. And I've done all the jobs. Like I worked as a tech. I did, you know, I wasn't a licensed tech, but I worked as a tech when I was going through vet school. Mm -hmm. And I think on some level that was a really good thing for me to go through because I saw how hard it was to be in the kennel. And, you know, like I was in the kennel when animals were hospitalized and we were experiencing parvo. And every time you turned around, there was diarrhea to clean up. Like, so you'd end up crying on the floor because you <laughs> cleaned up your 18th pile of diarrhea. And going from that to being, you know, the owner of the hospital is a really, was a really good way for me to learn that like all of these people matter and yeah. all of these people have bad days. The receptionist, yeah. I was a receptionist. They get most of the crap, oh. you know, from yeah. the clients. And that's a really hard job. And I think that if we can, as a profession, understand that we're all vital and we're all important and that we all have, you know, value to this profession, that it's going to go a long way to help us, you know, solve this problem that we have right now, this negativity problem, this understaffing problem, you know, it's a big thing. So Kind of on the same line, what do you tell your technician students when they're getting ready to graduate and go out into the world? What do you tell them? I, you said advocate for yourself, but what mm -hmm. do you tell them to do in the profession and accept in the profession? Like, is are there like practical things that you can do to make veterinary medicine easier on yourself? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Okay. And I think, um, I think one of the things about, well, we've already talked about advocating for yourself, but I also tell them really look for the culture of the practice. What does the culture of the practice look like? Because we all want money and we all think money's going to make us happy. And if you're in crappy culture, you're not going to be happy no matter how much money you're making. Right. So how do you evaluate that? Right. I mean, I tell them if they can at all try to work 
do a working interview where they're in the practice for a day or two and they really watch how people treat each other because you can everybody can be nice for that hour or you two hour it, right? or three hour interview <laughs> right but when you're in the depth of an anesthesia or you have something crash or you have an emergency come in that's really where you see how people how the team works together or doesn't work together um, watching how the receptionist talk to the clients, watching how the clients talk to the receptionist and not that everybody can control your clients, right? But how is that, how is that um, supported? Um, one of the things I think about, and I'm not an advocate of firing every client in the world when they have a bad day because they all have Me bad days. We all have bad days. Sure. But I think absolutely having a conversation of supporting your staff and, and, and as a human being, my staff doesn't deserve to be talked to the way you just talked to them and having those difficult conversations or the practice manager doing that. You know, I, um, so I think really looking at the culture of the practice and where, and how do they value technicians? So I want to talk, um, segue a little bit into the profession of veterinary technology yeah. and the struggles that we're having as a profession. And, um, and, uh, I'm going to pick on you a little bit because you clearly demonstrated one of the issues where you Do talked it. about you you were a technician when you were uh, getting ready for vet school or going through vet school. And really, truly, you were a veterinary assistant. Right. I was and, not a tech. Right. And so the struggle in this profession of so veterinary, I've met so many amazing veterinary assistants that can run circles around me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. in the clinics. And, yeah. and so I, I'm, I'm, again, not devaluing that person in that profession and that chosen piece for whatever reason um, that they're a veterinary assistant. But I think in order for us as veterinary technicians to, so uh, I get all these things start popping into my head that I want to say, <laughs> and I want to be linear and I want them to make sense. And I'm right. like, oh, if you were I in my head right now, Julie, <laughs> my listeners are used to that. Cause when I'm on these by myself, sometimes I go all over and then I listen to it and I'm like, well, I don't even know if that made sense. <laughs> so we have over 200 veterinary technology programs in the United States that are cranking out students every day. Right. And we can't keep them in the profession. And, and about at about five to seven years, people are leaving is what most of the studies are showing. Right. And I think it's a multitude of things. But I, so I say to people, I don't want to create more vet tech programs. I want to plug that. I don't want to pour more techs into the bucket. I want to plug the hole at the bottom of the bucket. Yeah. How do we keep so them that, in? Right. Yeah. So I think, I think one of them is absolutely starting to really value us as a profession and we are and I know it's not in every state but it has to start to come into the state legislatures it has we have to open practice stacks we have to protect the title whatever title gets chosen right I mean that's another whole conversation about <laughs> veterinary technicians veterinary nurses and all of that I know but, my techs hate the nurse the nurse yeah, word <laughs> that's because they're all old exactly they're used to be yeah. in techs and they see yeah. the value in that yeah, yeah. and 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 I was on that wagon for many years. I'm a registered veterinary technician. This is what I've done. But right. the younger generation, well, so two things. When somebody says, what do you do? And I say, I'm a registered veterinary technician. And they say, I don't know what that is. I say to them, it's like a nurse for animals. Right. And then the light bulb goes on for the public, right? The public understands the nurse importance thing. of a nurse, right. right? So that, and then the other thing is the younger generation really loves that term much more. And you know what? I'm fading out. I so I've kind of gone to, I don't really care. I want us to pick one. I want us to all get behind it, which I don't know, well, that will ever, how do you make that happen? But that's not, that's for the young people to figure out. <laughs> um, um, but, but then get into the legislatures and get it into the practice acts. And then I'm going to say this, and then veterinarians have to step up because in the state of Indiana right now, Registered veterinary technician is a protected term by law. It's a misdemeanor for someone, anyone to call someone who hasn't graduated from an AVMA accredited program, passed the VTNE, passed the state boards. It is against the law to call them a veterinary technician. Oh, I like that though. That's good. Yeah. But Julie, the law doesn't stop people from doing it. Well, there course. are still doctors in the state of Indiana who call everybody on their staff veterinary technicians. Right. Instead of veterinary assistant. 
and correct. And, and I, and I also respect the fact that veterinarians can't hire enough technicians. So they're hiring people off the street and they're training them to do what they need done. And those are veterinary assistants. And I am fine with that right? because I know we have this hole. And so I'm not saying don't have them, but, but call them the right name. Like, how would you feel if I, you know, so then, so then we get the conversation of, well, they know as much as you, so why can't they take the VTNE? And I say, well, fine. I know as much as you as a doctor, why can't I take the boards at the boards and call myself a doctor? Right. So until we get to that point where the profession is as recognized as a doctor of veterinary medicine and that you don't just pull in somebody off the street and say, you're now a doctor or you're now a technician and you can do these things. Um, I think that's why people leave. So yes, it's about the money to some degree, but it's also about the level of respect and empowerment. And I think we talked earlier, again, before we got on air, that I don't like the term technician utilization because I think you utilize a tool, you empower people to do their job and to work at their highest skill set. And the more I'm challenged as a veterinary technician, the more I want to do. The more responsibility I'm given, the more I want to do. Not everybody wants to be a supervisor. That's not the only role, right, that I can elevate to. Right. Put me in charge of inventory. Put me in charge of um, coming up with a new fee structure. Put me in charge of the kennel workers as supervision, maybe. But put me in charge of writing SOPs. Give me something that keeps my mind active, that helps me contribute to the care of the patients, but also helps me make your life better, right? That's I want to make your life better. Right. Yeah. I I think as a doctor, if we can realize that if you really utilize your technicians, you can do so much. Like during Mm -hmm. COVID, I was working alone a lot, but I had really kick-ass technicians Mm -hmm. and I could see so many patients because all I had to do Mm -hmm. is go in the room, examine them and say, okay, this one needs blood work and x-rays and an IV catheter and blah, blah, blah. And then just walk away. Yeah, and and trust that that was all going to get done. And then when it was done, they were going to come back to me with the blood work or whatever. And I didn't have to like hover over anybody. And I think if we can, like, how do we teach that to vets? Like how valuable technicians are and how we need to not only treat them well, but pay them. So two things, and I'm not going to have the exact date, right? But I think it was in 2008 or 2009, the AVMA did a study. And for every credential technician that's working at the top of their skill set, the practices were generating, and I don't don't think it was per technician, but um, $91,000 more. I believe it. In revenue. Yeah. That That was like 15 years ago. So think about what it could be now, number one. Yeah. But number two, here's the other issue I see at vet schools. So I'm going to rag on vet school a little bit. Go for it. Beat us when, up. when our fourth, so here at Purdue, and I can't speak to what it's like at other schools, but here at Purdue, our fourth year veterinary students are in clinics and they essentially do the function of a veterinary technician. They greet the client. They take the history and do the physical exam, whatever else. They go out and talk to the uh, attending physician, decide what they're, you know, talk about their differential, decide what all the things are going to do. And then they go back and they, and they, pull the blood and they submit the stuff to ClinPath and they do. So that's how they're functioning in their fourth year. According to law, state law or national law, whatever law, I'm making up laws. I'm not, but a veterinarian. <laughs> not a lawyer. That's okay. I know, right? <laughs> a veterinarian. There are four things that a veterinarian can do that nobody else can do. Right. Diagnose, prognose, do surgery, prescribe. Right. That's it. So why is that? Why is that not the four things we're teaching them how to do in school? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it becomes a big problem. Like I've had a lot of young veterinarians that won't let my techs do, they won't even let them give a vaccine or give a injection. They're like, oh no, I have to give all the injections. I'm like, they're perfectly capable of that. Like if, if it's a, like in our state, you have, the vet has to give the rabies. Same here. Or the tech can do it under the supervision. So Uh like. I could stand there and watch my tech give it. And then I'm responsible for it. Right. I, there's so many vets that I've hired that won't even allow that. Like they want to, they want to be involved in all of it. And it, I think it comes down to somewhat trusting that, you know, they, they're in charge of the, of the shots. So they don't want to give up that power in case something goes wrong, Mm -hmm. but it's such a waste of 
it's a waste of talent for the technicians and it's a waste of time for the doctors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's part of the issue with training the vets in, in college is that has to change. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I think in human medicine, when a, when a phlebotomist can't hit the vein, they don't go get a doctor. No, cause the doctors suck at it. Right. Yeah. And like so I, I, my techs can draw blood way better than I can, except on birds. I do the birds, but any of the, like, if, if you give me a cat jugular, I'm probably not going to hit it. I mean, I'll try. Yeah. I'm good at back yeah. legs, but yeah, that's, that's the truth. Like yeah. doctors aren't good at it. We're not good at, I can't read a urine to save my life. Right. And so uh, why, why do we at vet schools continue, you know, because it's a mind shift. It's such a mind shift to think about what if they really like surgery, prognose, diagnose, prescribe. Yeah. That's all we need to teach them. Right. And I, and I think all of the other stuff underneath that, right. All of the microbiology and parasitology and clinical pathology, all the ologies, all the things, all the disease processes, they need to know that and understand that. And the, um, uh, uh, pathophysiology. I have knowledge of pathophysiology. I understand for some things how, what happens to the body. And so recognizing, yeah. So it just, you know, the AVMA requires that best students have their little checkoff book of, you know, they've done this many catheters and they've done, and I'm like the AVMA, we're, I love the AVMA, maybe, Um, (laughs) but they're, you know, it, it's just, um, we just can't seem to get off the Titanic, even though we're going towards this iceberg. It's like, you guys make the shift right? Just because Let's this change. is how you learned and this is how you were trained and how you were educated. doesn't mean it's that we need to keep doing That's that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree but, with you because I have seen that mentality come out of that school time and time again that, oh, well, you know, I don't want to let the techs give my vaccines. I don't want to let the techs do a cysto, like they have all of these like rules. And I'm like, oh no, they know how to do it. They're good at it. And they're probably way better than you are coming right out of vet school. So they can give a shot without it hurting. Your dogs are jumping every time, (laughs) you know, there's a problem here. So yeah, I I really think that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Like if techs felt respected, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about the money thing and how we can't afford to pay. And, and I don't think that's just a technician thing. That's a doctor thing too, because again, you know, do you ever get to call your doctor and talk to them and you don't get a bill in the mail or, you know, we don't value as a profession, we don't value our time and our knowledge and charge clients for that. Right. You know, and, and I absolutely, my heart bleeds with every client that comes in the door and can't afford to care for their three thousand dollar labradoodle <laughs> Frenchy, <laughs> you know and yeah and thinking about as a pet owner what it costs to i mean it's not really in some ways any cheaper than having a kid right i mean we don't send them to college but <laughs> right right yeah you there are expenses money for their medical expenses right there are expenses for owning an animal and having a pet in your life. And I am as guilty as anybody about when I take my cats to the vet and I'm like, damn it, this costs so much. And then I'm just like, shut up, Paige, shut up, Paige, shut up, Paige. (laughs) And I think some of that's our society, right? We want everything free or cheap or whatever, but yet we want it American made, but you can't do things free and cheap when it's American made. I think think we're not comparing like, I don't know why we think that veterinary medicine is so expensive because, you know, like trades, I, I just had my house painted and it was like, I don't know, over $3,000. And those guys are just like putting the paint on, which is something I could do. Like I'm not trained like they are, and I probably wouldn't do it as well. But why do we think that that paint job is more valuable than what we do every day. And yeah. so I, I really do think we need to raise the prices. And I know that's a kind of a controversial thing, but I, I think we just have to. And, you know, and then maybe we can pay people better and we're starting to, mm-hmm. but I still think it's a, it's a problem. 
Well, and I think it's a it's a conversation to Julie with the public, right? And talking to our clients. So let's say a client calls and um, wants to know how much you charge for a spay. You know, does your receptionist say our spay is, you know, $150? I mean, I'm making up numbers because I don't know how much they are anymore because right. it's been there, a long time. If, if you're at an AHA hospital, it's way more than that. <laughs> Yeah. It's like five, six, seven hundred. Yeah. Okay. So they call and they and you know, and then they call down the street and it's five hundred dollars. Well, they're gonna go for the one that's 150. But yeah. does your receptionist have you educated your receptionist to talk to the client about let me tell you what this all includes, right? Mm -hmm. It no, includes pain know. meds, it includes all of the sterilization things that we have to do, it includes an IV catheter, it includes IV fluids, and start talking and educating our clients that veterinary medicine is medicine. Mm -hmm. So I have said to clients in the past, do you, you know, back in the old days when ER was on, you know, do you watch ER and do you see people in the surgery room? We do all that same stuff in veterinary medicine. And they're like, you do? Yeah. They don't understand it. I'm like, well, yeah, we they're do. watching, they're watching the TV vets and some of those aren't oh, the greatest, right? My gosh. <laughs> I, my, I had to do the same thing with my mom. She got a puppy and she was getting her yeah. spayed, you know, cause she's in Florida and I can't do it. And um, she's like, wow, they quoted me, I don't know, it was like four or $500. And I was like, yeah, mom, you could go to the cheap clinic and get it done for a hundred. But at this mm -hmm. clinic, they're going to do an IV catheter. They're going to do blood work. They're going to have a technician standing right there. She's going to be hooked up to monitors. She's going to be monitored when she's waking up. You know, they're not going to just throw her in a cage and walk away. Like there's a difference between the, pr the price of this spay and another spay, like if she was at the Humane Society, not to degrade the doctors that do Humane Society work, no. it has to be done at a cheaper level, but you, you're paying for this, not this. And, yeah. you know, until people understand that because they don't get to watch it. Like my mom has no idea, even yeah. though she's been with me for years, she knows what I do, but she doesn't have an idea of why it's so expensive. Yeah. you know, so expensive. And if you were yeah. getting a human hysterectomy, you know, what well, would it be? 40,000, 50,000 maybe. Yeah. And so that whole thing of insurance, right. In human medicine and how that is a business. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But we, as a, a patient see this small piece of the bill of what it really costs to get it done. Um, and then I think, you know, the other piece for me, Julie, is access to care you know, and, and that's a big the importance issue right of now. pets. Yeah. The importance of pets in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And I want us to be able to provide care to those pets of homeless people or those people who don't have all of the funds. And how do we do that? Because again, I think that human animal bond is so important in this. It always has been, but especially in this day and age of, I think, increased mental health challenges for people right. and how pets can really help with that. And so, you know, also educating our, our veterinarians and our technicians of not every patient and owner can afford or want gold standard. Correct. And so what is the other standards? That's not, I don't want to say lower, but what are other options for this pet so that it gets some care that the client knows that it's being well cared for. How do we look at that? How do we look at access to care in veterinary medicine for the importance of pets in people's lives, but also the people who can't afford the, the gold standard of care that we want to give? Yeah. Right. Well, that that's a really good point because I was talking about this with one of my coaching clients the other day. And what what comes to mind when you say that is, then how do you deal with that mental part of it? Because so many veterinarians are like, oh, well, this person won't do what I want them to do because they can't afford it or whatever. Maybe they just don't want to. Maybe they, they've got the money. They just don't want to spend it on a pet. Yep. And so how do you balance that in your brain to, it's not my job to save all the pets. It's my job to help the people do what they want for their pet. And, and yep. that is a really hard brain shift. But until we figure that out, we're going to be stressed because we think that our job is to save all the animals yeah. and it's not. Our job is to help the people do what they want to do or save their animal. And mm -hmm. like, what would be your thought on that? That's a big question. I know, but oh, it's, it's super hard because I think you're right. We are, many of us in the profession are type A, 
and we want to save the world and we want to fix everything. Yeah. And you can't, right? No. And you know, I, uh, on a personal level, just a few nights at home, a few nights ago at home had a, had a breakdown with my husband. And I just, I'm like, there's all these layers of things happening. And, and now another layer is hit and I just can't do this. And we need to talk about it and we need to figure out how to manage this, these, all of these things that are going on. And so I think, first of all, we have to recognize where we are personally in that, in that space. Um, how do we take care of ourselves? So when I talk to students, I talk about the bucket. I always talk about a bucket, apparently. How do you keep your bucket full so that every day you can come into work and pour your bucket back out to those people? And then you go home at night or the weekend or whatever, and you've got to fill your back bucket. up. Yeah. yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. And how do we set boundaries? How do we, uh, which, you know, everybody talks about boundaries. Boundaries are super hard. Um, yeah, it is hard. Yeah. Because we set a boundary and then we break it immediately because we're compassionate. We feel guilty and we're kind. Or, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, you have to learn yourself. You have to learn who you are and where you're at and, and what is your, I don't want to say what is your breaking point because I don't want anybody to go and break, but what are the things that you start to see in your life that start to say, Ooh, I better figure, I better stop doing something. Get I better close to the pull edge. back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then recognizing like, I think some of it is, um, so giving clients an A, B, and C choice with no judgment, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. These yeah, are so the. I think the judgment piece is what also drives some of us to that point of I'm going to discount this. I'm going to do this because we're judging that what they're doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. We don't know their lives. We don't know their shoes. We don't know their experiences, their lived experiences. And so how do we come at that patient and that client or come with them, walk beside them and say, here are your three options. All three have benefits, pros and cons. I'm going to give you all the information I can give you. And then I want you, you, you have to make the choice because yeah, this is whatever your decision and your money. you make is the right one. Yep, exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And students have a hard time and, and I have had a hard time in the past with those judgments, right? Mm-hmm. They're not doing, they, they're not doing, they're not sitting in ICU watching their pet suffer. I'm the one doing that because they're not ready to euthanize. Right. Well, how do I know that that pet isn't the last pet they bought with their deceased spouse mm-hmm. and they are having trouble letting it go because it's the last thing they have, right? I don't know what their shoes are. Right. or what their journey is. And so, you know, some of that sadly comes with experience and age and you start recognizing that not everybody had the same life you had and not everybody looks at everything through the same lens you have. Right. Um, but I, Julie, I, I, I don't have an answer. It's so hard because we all want to take care of everything. We all want to save everything and to realize that you can't save everything and everyone in the world. You have to take care of yourself. Right. Right. Well, I, I yeah. So that you can help. Yeah. Help more. Like if you don't take care of yourself, then you're somebody just said this on the podcast. I I don't even know if it's been out yet, but that's what one of my guests said. They said, if you don't, if you don't take care of where you are now, then you're cutting off your capacity to help hundreds of other pets in the future. But if you work on your mental health and you stay focused on what you can do in the profession and set boundaries and take care of yourself, then you're providing yourself longevity where you can stay in the profession for 30 plus years. Like I have, or you have, like we can stay in the profession because we've actually worked on our mental health and worked on our boundaries and understood that, you know, like I've raised a bunch of orphan kittens But that was my way of giving back because, okay, well, that's something I can do to save the world, but I can't save them all. Like I, I've eventually got to the point where I was like, all right, litter number 50. I don't think I I'm doing any more of these, but then my techs would want to do it. So I'm like, all right, well, we can save this litter as long as somebody's willing to step up and take care of them. I'll, I'll provide the finances. You provide the up in the middle of the night, giving bottles. I've done that. Been there, done that. But I think if we can balance that and be like, okay, well, I can't save this cat because this woman doesn't want to, 
Like I just had one yesterday and she's like, you know, I know doc what this cat needs, but I'm not willing to put that kind of money into this cat. Yeah. I said, okay, well, let's try this then. Let's see if we can buy her some time. At least we can't yep. fix what's wrong, but maybe we can make her comfortable so you can keep her around for a while and be okay with that and not be yeah. judgy, but then be like, yeah. okay, the next one, maybe I can save, Yeah, you know, and, it, and that's, I, I, I hate to say that's life, but that's mm-hmm. kind of, kind of the, the facts, right? No, but Julie, you know, I would even say to you in that first scenario, you did save that cat, you know, you didn't save that cat the way you thought you should, but you gave that cat and that owner some more time together. And, um, and for a client to be able to say that and you not say, well, Jesus, I can't believe you can't, you know, you won't put that for you to say, okay, then let's do this. Like, how hard was that for her to say to you? I love this cat, but I can't, I don't have the money or I can't put the money or I won't put the money. Well, she, And she truly does love the cat. So who am I to judge what she's doing? Like she yeah. may have a really good reason for not wanting to put this cat through anesthesia and tooth extractions and like all in the heart workup and all the things that this cat would need to get proper care. Yeah. And, you know, she has her reasons because she really does love this cat and she may see that as suffering. Yeah, exactly. I I think that I, I think that's why I, I love these kind of discussions. It's because there's many, many ways to look at these situations and protect your mental health. Yeah. You know, like that's her cat that she loves. So who else to make the decision? Yeah. Not me. I don't love that cat. I, I really don't care. I mean, I don't, I love her. I love her cat, Yeah. but I don't love her cat. Like I love my right. cat. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. so she is the absolute right person to make that decision. Yeah. And then yeah. I have to be okay with that, with just helping her. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's what we can do. And then if this doesn't work, there's another step. And if that doesn't work, then maybe we are at euthanasia yep. and then I can help you through that as well. Exactly. I know how to exactly. do that. Yeah. You know, I tell my husband, so my husband's an old farm guy. So he has a little trouble spending money on cats and dogs because, you know, <laughs> just let nature, it on the farm. let nature take its course while nature sometimes is mean and hateful. Right. Um, um, and, and he and I have talked as, because when we got married, I had three cats who were aging, who were aged. <laughs> and I said to him, I need to get, I need to spend the money to gather the information so that I can make an informed decision on what is best for this particular situation, us and the pet. Right. And that's how I would say that to him. And I know that he struggled with the money that I have spent on our cats over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I'm also a professional in the profession. And I'm like, you, you have our job is to help the client understand what's going on with the pet, how we as a profession can help and how they as the owner, right? It's the whole team, right? I mean, I even account the owner as part of the team. It's a collaboration. Yeah. It is. I I say that all the time. I'm like, that client knows more about that pet than you do. Yep. And so how can we all work together for quality of life for that pet? Whatever that looks like, you know? Um, Yeah. It's, it's so tough. It's sometimes it's the toughest thing I've ever done in my life, but at the same time, it's also brought me some of the greatest joys in my life. I don't know how else to, and that's what I say to students. It can be the hardest day, but it can be also be the most amazing day of your life. Yeah. Yeah. On both sides of it, right? The joy and the sorrow, it's all, it's all an experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so then figuring out how you handle it. Yes. Well, and getting help. Like I always say, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm having you on the podcast. I want people to know that there's people out there that, that have been through it and have experience and know how to help. And, you know, that like, you don't have to quit the profession. You don't Mm -hmm. have to, you know, hurt yourself or suffer mentally. Like there's so many tools in the toolbox that we can help you with. And that's, that's why I love what you're doing. And I love what I'm doing because I really think that all of us together can, can make this, this work, this profession that's really struggling right now. 
All right. So we've been going probably over an hour, close to an hour. So okay. I, I want to have you back because like, there's so many other things we can talk about. Right. But let's try to think of kind of maybe just one thing that we didn't say on this podcast that you want to make sure that gets said or something that we did say that you want to reiterate before we close. Okay. One thing. Hmm. Um, so I think I would say respect each other, be kind to each other. And when I say that, I also mean respect and be kind to yourself. Mm. Give yourself some grace. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Treat yourself like yeah. someone you love, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Or better. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's, that's a golden. If you yeah. can do that, that's golden. Yeah. Because, absolutely. You know, none of us are perfect. None of us have it all figured out. Like we're all, we're all humans, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Struggling well, through. I definitely want to have you back because there's a lot of things I still want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the right. board work. I want to talk to you about all the other things you've done. Um, so we'll do this again when we can. Um, Perfect. But tell, tell people how they can find you if they want to, if you want them to find you. Yeah, absolutely. So I am on Indeed. Um, is that right? No, LinkedIn, not Indeed. Sorry. LinkedIn. I'm on yeah. LinkedIn. Um, Paige, um, Paige Allen, um, MSRVT. I don't know my exact little... Um, link. I can send that to you if you want it. I don't know if you yeah, put stuff in I can put it in, in the that. show notes or you can, yep. they can look you up. I, yep. I, I Googled you and you come right up. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I, um, you know, I'm on Facebook too, but Facebook is my, I don't want to say less professional side cause I'm still professional, but you'll see a lot of grandbaby pictures and some of that stuff. So, yeah. you know, if you want to get me, if you want to see me, find me on there, I'm actually, um, uh, I'm not going to, you'll have to find me. Yeah. Reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'll, I'll share my name on, on Facebook because it is different. Okay, um, awesome. But um, absolutely through Purdue, you can, um, people can reach out to me on my email. It's P Jones and the number two at Purdue.edu. And that's because um, when you get married, Purdue like wants your firstborn child to change your name. So I was a Jones. <laughs> so P Jones and the number two at purdue.edu, but my name is Paige Allen, and I'm always happy to talk to people about the profession. Um, any aspect, role, um, questions, always happy to, if I don't know the answer, I'll help you find it. Awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been delightful and fun, and oh. I want to keep going for hours, so we'll do this again if you're willing. I would absolutely love that, Julie. I, I had a blast today talking with you. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and uh, have a beautiful week. Bye. Bye, Paige. Bye.